Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you been struggling to understand climate change and what it means for you and your family? What if I told you that you could do it in 10 easy steps? You'd be able to understand Earth's changing climate in just 10 steps. Well, today we're talking to meteorologist and author Mike Nelson, who has written the book that answers those questions. Mike Nelson has spent more than 40 years serving his local community as a broadcast meteorologist, and his work has helped revolutionize the industry. We'll discuss his amazing career and the journey that led to his writing this book. Climate change is one of the biggest challenges facing our world today, and it's important to have a messenger like Mike to help people understand how it works and how we can work together to reverse it. Mike, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, thanks, Marshall. Nice to be here with you. Very, very much an honor to be on the show. Well, it's, you know, I've, I've certainly known known of you for so many years now, and I, I would say that you're considered one of the sort of legendary broadcast meteorologists in this country, so it's an honor to have you on. Oh, and I, I know you're, you're maybe smiling and blushing a little bit, but let me just give you some of his credentials and why I say that. Uh, Mike's the chief meteorologist at KMGH TV in Denver, Denver 7. He has been a former chief meteorologist in markets like St. Louis. He was the executive vice president of Weather Central in 1979. He started working there in 1976 and has a meteorology degree uh, from the University of Wisconsin. Um, he holds the AMS seal and is a former member of the AMS board on broadcast meteorology. And here's the big one that tells you he knows his stuff and is well-respected. He's a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, which in itself is a big deal. Uh, I know I felt it was when I was honored as a fellow. And quiet as cap, I think he's one of the few, and we need more, broadcast meteorologists that have received that honor. And so uh, he's certainly someone that knows his stuff, 18-time Emmy Award winner as well. So Mike, the first question we always ask every Weather Geeks guest, how'd you get into weather? Is it something from your youth or experience, a storm? Yes, on all counts, Marshall. Uh, <laughs> it goes back to when I was about uh, six or seven years old growing up in Madison, Wisconsin. And there was one day that, uh, that we had a big thunderstorm line coming in. There were tornado watches in effect. I remember this big black cloud moving in from the west and the hail started falling and the winds were blowing and the trees were sideways. And I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> and when the sirens started to go off, my mom got us all down in the basement. And as soon as she'd let go of my the collar of my shirt, I'd run back upstairs to go to the window and she'd run back after me and grab me and bring me down in the basement. <laughs> and from that point on, I couldn't wait for the next big storm to come along. And I know that's not an uncommon story among meteorologists, but that was my seminal moment that uh, I can still remember so clearly to this day. No, and I, I think most people know you uh, and your career as a broadcast meteorologist, but you actually got started in the private sector. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, 
So when you're a weather geek as a little kid, uh, you check out every book in the library on weather. And uh, I built a weather station in my backyard out of some old pieces of wood and bought some dime store thermometers. And I keep track of all the temperature and cloud conditions, uh, morning, noon, night, uh, before and after school. And uh, generally for, for that type of person, the local TV weather forecaster sort of becomes your hero. And uh, there was a particularly good one when I was a teenager by the name of Terry Kelly. And he was on the ABC affiliate in Madison. And at the time, I worked at a Baskin Robbins ice cream store. And lo and behold, <laughs> Mr. Kelly, favorite. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Kelly had a sweet tooth and he liked Jamocha ice cream. Wow. And used to come into my shop. Well, for me, uh, to use a sports analogy, uh, it'd be like uh, Peyton Manning coming into your store or something. I mean, this was like, wow, this is Terry Kelly. And so I'd always make sure I was the the scooper that got to serve him. And I'd give him a way too big a scoop of ice cream. And I'd ask him weather questions. Gee, Mr. Kelly, you think that low on the Southwest is going to bring us some snow? And he was always very nice. And uh, finally, after this went on for a while, my father uh, said to me, Mike, this guy comes in the shop all the time. Why don't you ask him for a job out at the station? You don't have to get paid or anything, but go out and empty his wastebaskets, answer his phone. And uh, at the age of 17, when my dad gave me that advice, my response was, Dad, that's a dumb idea. That would never happen. But I realized, no, Dad's probably pretty smart. So the next time he came in, I worked up the courage to say, Mr. Kelly, if you could ever use some help out at the TV station, I would do it for free. And he didn't say yes right away. But uh, as he and his wife, Mary, left the ice cream shop, she said, Ter, that young man's so cute, you've got to hire him. <laughs> and uh, a few uh, weeks later, he came in and said, why don't you come out next Friday and we'll talk? So that was uh, 1976. And I went out to the TV station and he said, you know, I could use some help here in the evening when I go home to dinner. You can make a couple of maps and you can answer the phone and stuff like that. And he said, I'll pay you minimum wage. And so that was the beginning. And for uh, weather people that are in television around the country, I worked for Terry Kelly and he had formed a company called Weather Central. And Weather Central was kind of like an AccuWeather. We did radio and TV forecasts, power utility, load forecasts, ski area forecasts, agricultural forecasts, stuff like that. So I started uh, when I was a freshman at the University of Wisconsin, my meteorology program, also working for Weather Central at oh, the wow. TV station. And wow. the name Terry Kelly may or may not ring a bell to weather people around the country, but ultimately Weather Central became the world's leading supplier of television weather graphics equipment. Uh, today, it's part of WSI slash the weather company, but there are many meteorologists all over the country that used Weather Central computers in the late 70s through the early 2000s before those companies merged. And Terry is still a dear friend. Um, he and his wife, Mary, and my wife, Cindy, and I, we vacation together a lot. But he was my mentor, dear friend. And uh, I happened to fall into, you know, working at the cutting edge of television weather computers 40 years ago. 
Yeah, and I wanted to kind of, before we talk about your book, The World's Littlest Book on Climate, we're going to be all over that throughout the podcast, but I want to stay right here for a moment because you talked about this sort of cutting edge, sort of the first weather computer graphics. I don't think people outside of our world realize how important these systems are to what you do and perhaps are going to be doing later today uh, in terms of your weather cast and broadcast and so forth. I mean, Having been at the forefront and now where we are now, what are what are the biggest changes you've seen in these uh, systems over that time span? Well, when I began in 1976, when I said uh, I would make some maps for Terry while he was home for dinner, uh, literally we had a drafting table and we had uh, paper maps that you would use felt tip magic markers and you'd create the weather on this map and then you would have it taped up to the wall of the studio and they'd shoot it with a camera. That's the way we did weather. And if you think of those old menu boards at, at restaurants and diners where you have those little plastic letterings, you press them into the blackboard, that's the way that we did the tonight, tomorrow forecast. You have to put all those little letters up there. I mean, it was essentially not much different than what uh, the early pioneers in the 1950s and 60s were doing with chalkboards. I mean, that's the way that we did weather. And uh, very labor intensive. Took a long time to put maps together. You couldn't obviously animate anything. And so what happened was that um, uh, in the late 1970s, there was a, um, well, even when I was in, in the mid 1970s at the University of Wisconsin, there was a system at the meteorology department called Mikitis, ah, yes. which was man computer interactive data something or other yes, it was an acronym. I remember it well yeah and mikitis was a huge mainframe computer of you know millions of dollars of computer hardware and the whole idea was could we take a satellite image and overlay different uh, meteorological fields on it winds or temperatures or humidity and at this point this was strictly at the university level i mean no tv station was going to invest that kind of money in a mainframe computer so Terry uh, worked with some computer programmers there, brilliant people, and developed a uh, crude, by today's standards, uh, computer weather graphic system on an Apple II. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, wow. You know, and, and a very, very crude computer. I mean, it, it's space invaders and Pong compared to what video games are now. But we offered this computer system for sale for a whopping total of $15,000. Wow. A complete weather graphic system. And uh, we went to the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters Conference, and it was the hit of the show. Everybody was crowding around this little tiny booth that we had, which had this crude little weather computer. Uh, and, uh, but nobody was buying them. And so Terry went to one of the general managers at a TV station. He knew, he said, I don't get it. I mean, we have this wonderful computer. It's the buzz of the show, nothing but people around us, but nobody's ordering any. And the guy said, well, Terry, uh, it's a neat thing, but for $15,000, nobody thinks it can possibly work. It's way too cheap. <laughs> and so they didn't do anything at all except double the price. Right. And we started selling them like hotcakes. Wow. Yeah. And now, uh, so my job, uh, in addition to doing uh, forecasting and stuff, I became the trainer for the weather computers in the early 1980s. And I would travel all over the country and install these weather computers as they gradually got better and better. And people don't know this, but uh, in 1980, I went to Cleveland to the NBC affiliate there and brought a weather computer to a uh, gentleman that's had a fairly successful career uh, by the name of Al Roker. And yeah. I trained Al on his very first weather computer that he wow. had. 
That is amazing. That's really an amazing. I mean, uh, we're talking with Mike Nelson here on the Weather Geeks podcast, and that that was a really interesting slice of I think meteorology history that Weather Geeks listeners perhaps didn't know. I, I knew pieces of that, but certainly hearing it all in kind of context, there was really interesting. I want to shift, and I'll come back to your sort of weather and meteorology because I know you talked to oh, spoken to over seven hundred fifty thousand kids, and I still want to find out about this tornado dance a bit later. <laughs> But I want to pivot now to more of a discussion on the world's littlest book on climate. And this is important. And I mean, he's holding it up. Um, This is important because, to be honest with you, there's been a point where there are some of our colleagues and more specifically your colleagues in the television meteorology world have had this sort of reputation, at least some, of being climate sort of skeptical, if you will, and so forth. Yeah. I think that's changing. We're seeing a shift. But not only are you not skeptical, you're leading with this book. So right. what inspired you to write the book? Well, uh, they, one of them just came in the door. I hear my wife and my, our little granddaughter just came inside. We take care <laughs> of the grandkids fairly often. We have three of them. They're eight, five, and two and a half, the little girl that just came in. And uh, I've been uh, – I go back on climate change to uh, – when people would say, you know, back in the seventies, you guys said it was cooling. I was at those lectures at the university of Wisconsin when Reed Bryson, who was the founder of the department, uh, had a theory called the dirty window theory. And the idea was that since world war II, we put so much dust in the atmosphere, the aerosols would block out the incoming light causing the planet to cool. And in the mid seventies, we had a series of about three straight, really cold winters. And there were books that were published and there were magazine articles about the new ice age. And even then the preponderance of evidence was that the carbon dioxide would overtake the aerosols and we would get a warming. And when people say that, oh, you said it was cooling, that's really a myth. And there are- um, It was like one magazine article. (laughs) It's like basically one yeah, it was about it was night, about eighty-five percent of the articles, uh, the uh, research done said the warming would overtake any cooling. So I know that I was there listening to those lectures. Um, we didn't really talk about it a lot in the seventies and eighties. I mean, uh, obviously Hansen came out in the late eighties and spoke about uh, the the warming, but it was in the nineties that it became more of an issue. And my first book, I've written three. Uh, the, the first book I wrote was back in the late 90s, and I had a whole chapter on climate change. Had another one with my next book that came out in the early 2000s. But uh, for me, it's been building as far as uh, we're, we're, we're wasting time. We should have been on this way more 30 years ago. Uh, and so every day that we delay doing something to stop lighting carbon on fire and reduce the amount of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere makes this job harder and harder. And so with the birth of my first grandchild, I thought we got to really start to speak out on this more. And so I've been doing it quite a bit uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so, eight to 10 years. And the book idea for the world's littlest book on climate actually came from a a local author who's one of the co-authors named Michael Banks. And Michael was at a party uh, and somebody asked about climate change. And it was one of those quick things at a cocktail party. How do you discuss a topic like this? Well, the other co-author, Peter Tons, is perhaps Mr. Carbon Dioxide in the world. He's run the lab at Mauna Loa, uh, a world-renowned carbon dioxide expert up at NCAR. And so we decided, let's try and write a book that is 
easy for the average person to understand without getting into really the depths of the science. So we've got Peter Tons up here on the, the 50th floor, but we need to bring that great information down to the first or second floor so the average American can understand it. That is something that television weathercasters are uniquely positioned to do because our job every day is to go on the air and in about two minutes explain to the average person very complicated things. And so it behooves all of us broadcast meteorologists to use our gifts of analogies and storytelling to come up with ways to help people understand this. Because it's not a question of believing in climate science, it's understanding climate science. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I am speaking with Mike Nelson, who is uh, an extraordinary colleague within the field of weather enterprise, uh, well-known broadcast meteorologist, author, uh, pioneering uh, meteorologist from the private sector side with what you heard about earlier in the show. But we're we're talking now about his book, and it's called The World's Littlest Book on Climate. And I, I, I'm glad you said that, because for most people on a day-to-day basis, you're the only scientist that people come across in their lives. And to have a situation where the only scientist that comes across that they see on a day-to-day basis and someone that they probably even trust people, there's a trust factor with folks like you. That's the reason people tune in to Mike Nelson is they trust you. They feel like they know you and they, you're going to deliver them sound information, but yet some people are out there delivering false or mis misinformed information on climate and that has been a problem, as I, as I alluded to earlier, I think it has moved on a bit, but you've partnered with I mean, some really heavy duty, I mean, Tons is one of the better known people in our field. Um, what would you say to colleagues out there in the broadcast world that are still sort of a little skeptical or afraid to tire. It doesn't look like it's hurt your ratings. Doesn't look like it's hurt your standing. You're, you're, I know, I know what you do in your market. Right. So, but there's this myth out there. I, well, I can't talk about it or I'm going to turn uh, viewers off. What would you say to that? Stick to the science. And that's the key thing. I mean, what I like to say is that the physical science is pretty simple. Add heat, get warmer. The political science is a whole lot tougher deal. And so when you start to advocate policy, then that gets to be uh, where you might get into some minefields. Uh, Do not be afraid. This is what I would say. Now, I've been at this for decades. So if I get a nasty email from somebody saying, oh, now you're talking about that global warming, I'm going to watch somebody else. It doesn't really bother me that much because uh, I will tell you this to all of my broadcast friends out there. Every time I talk about climate change in my show, I get at least 10 attaboys to any uh, dumb guy response. I, I'll get one or two of these emails from people that come back and will be saying, you know, that's all a myth and blah, blah, blah. And they'll throw out the usual talking points. But I get 10 other people that say, we watch you because you're the one that actually talks about this. So 
uh, if you start to talk about climate change in your shows, and you don't have to do two minutes, drop a quick little something in it. It really is surprising on a quiet weather day. You can do a lot in 30 or 40 seconds. And then maybe say, you know, I've written more about this on my Facebook page. If you'd like to read more, uh, go and check it out. And uh, you can just sprinkle it in like that a little bit. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we, we're up to uh, Hurricane Iota now. And we look exactly. at the amount of energy we've had and the warm waters in the ocean. It's easy to throw that in. Or you talk about the, the uh, low ice up in the Arctic. And you can maybe slide that into the, the Arctic amplification and your winter forecast. You can make all these things work. These people trust us to talk about tornadoes and severe thunderstorms and ice storms and all the winter weather hazards, you can also talk about climate change. And the key thing, Marshall, is that uh, we are the closest thing that most Americans get to a scientist. They're not going to run into Peter Tons on the street and say, tell me about carbon dioxide. Uh, but uh, they also invite us into their homes. And so it gives us a unique opportunity and responsibility to talk about climate change. Yeah, and I, I look at people like you, but even people like you know Jim Gandy and and others, and John Morales, and places that would be considered quote unquote conservative states, but they very much talk about this topic and they do it well, and the ratings are good. They yeah, leave their exactly. market, so it's certainly possible. And you know, there there is actually peer reviewed or scholarly uh, literature that has recently come out in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society and others that affirm exactly what you said, which is that, yeah, for every sort of negative comment you get, there's probably 10 to 20 positive comments. So that's a myth. Now, getting back to your book, you you break this down into 10 sort of easy, understandable components. So how did you arrive at that approach and why did you feel that that would be effective? Well, we wanted to make a book that would be easy for people to uh, quickly read through and go back if somebody asks them a question about something. Well, how do you know that it's that carbon dioxide isn't from volcanoes? Well, that's why we talk about the isotopes and the fact that we can kind of taste the flavor of what that carbon dioxide is coming from. And the fact that it's not new science, that in the 19th century, uh, we had scientists that realized that the atmosphere and certain gases like carbon dioxide trapped heat. So this is not just since Al Gore came out with the inconvenient truth. We wanted to have those kind of things, but most importantly, leave it at the end that we can still solve this problem and that we have done great and expensive endeavors in the past, whether it's the transcontinental railroad, the interstate highway system, high-speed computing, the Apollo project, none of those projects bankrupted our country and we're all better off for the fact that we accomplished those things. And so we wanted to leave people at the end saying, while this is a problem, it is also a great amount of possibility. It opens up uh, the best of us to, to fix this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Mike Nelson. And we're, gonna, we're talking about all kinds of things. We're talking about his book, The World's Littlest Book for a big problem, climate change. But there are other things that I want to talk with Mike about because he's got a wealth of knowledge and experience in this field. It's always an honor for someone like me to really pick his brain. So it's a really great conversation to kind of round out the conversation. Now, let me mention this because you did mention this earlier. You had two other books that you've written, The Colorado Weather Book and the Colorado Weather Almanac. 
So I kind of got a sense of what inspired the current book. So what just inspired you to get into writing those early books? Uh, first one, uh, the Colorado Weather Book, which I wrote in the mid '90s, was uh, kind of an idea. The news director and the GM came and said, "You know, we'd like to uh, put a book together." And there is a, a really famous uh, wildlife uh, and nature photographer out here named John Fielder. He's done books all over the country, but it, particularly in the Rocky Mountain region. And they said, "We've uh, got John Fielder's company on board, and we'd like to do a book with some of his pictures, and you can tell the weather story." And I thought this is a great opportunity. So I uh, wrote that one. And then I left one of the stations in town and went across the street, to the other station. And then they said, we'd like to do a book with you here as well. So that, can't, that was kind of the first two books. And what I found is, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but uh, producing a book like that might be the closest that a man can come to uh, actually giving birth. <laughs> just, <laughs> it was a lot of work, but when you get done, it's like, wow, it's nice to have this piece of, of work that's out there. The, the, the climate book did not take quite that much time because the whole idea was to have a short read. And so we've been working on this one pretty much during COVID. And that gave us an opportunity since I'm working from the basement of my house rather than going down to the studio, gave me a lot of extra time I could write and produce when I wasn't driving downtown and back. Yeah, I, I, I've written a book myself over the COVID break. And so I agree, it does give you, has given you a bit more time to do it. Now, and, and that's interesting that you've sort of used this COVID reality to produce what I feel is a very important book. Any surprises or big sort of memorable moments in this process of writing this particular book that come to mind just in the process or was it a pretty straightforward and easy process? Fairly straightforward, but you know, I'm, I'm working with this world renowned expert, Peter Tons on this. And, um, the, the, come back to what I talked about earlier, that broadcast meteorologists have a kind of a unique way because we talk to the public all the time of bringing things down to a level that hopefully they can understand. And so there were a few times it was like Peter would push back and say, no, we have to be more scientific about this. And it was like, yeah, I know, but we've got to make it so the average person can get this too. And so it was just a little bit, I didn't want to offend this great expert on carbon dioxide when I'd kind of bring it down to what I hope the average person would understand. And uh, that was probably the only thing. And Peter was very good about it, but uh, that was kind of the balance. We want to make sure it's everything scientifically accurate, but make sure that we also present it in a way that is understandable. And speaking of sort of going out, I, mean, I mentioned this earlier that um, my producers told me that you've spoken uh, roughly and I guess estimated 750,000 kids in your career. Um, and I wonder, one, what makes you so passionate about doing that? And do you also uh, mix in a little climate messaging when you talk to students? I do. I do. Um, I've spoken to schools since the late 1970s. I just, I like getting out and sharing my enthusiasm for weather. I love watching storms and, you know, kids are out in the weather. They're the ones that recess and stuff. And every single school has their set of weather geeks, you know, little kids are going to become meteorologists someday. And I'm very gratified that there are people now that are in the science that say, I remember when you came to my school. A quick story, I was out at uh, Lockheed Martin where they build the GOES satellites because uh, mm -hmm. it's close to Denver. And this was a couple of years ago and they were building GOES R. And I was doing a stand-up out there, got my microphone and I finished my little story and all of a sudden all of the white lab-coated uh, techs had left the the satellite and we're standing behind me and they said, Hey, Mr. Nelson, can we take a selfie with you? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure. Why? And they said, Oh, you totally came to our grade schools when we were little kids. <laughs> and I thought, 
they're rocket scientists now. I, I've Literally. done my duty. <laughs> Literally, and I, I, I think that's right. I don't think people realize the influence of people like you, and I, I guess to some degree me now for some kids that look sure. at me in some oh, way. Yeah. And I kind of remember those types of things now as I with the things that I do because the next generation of scientists and technologists and engineers are watching us now and reading your books as well. So right. that's, that's very important. But I... I, I I guess there's something called a tornado dam. Now this is an audio podcast, right. but is there somewhere we can Google or YouTube and see this tornado dance? And what's that about? I can actually, I will send the link on to your producer. Okay. Because we have it. Uh, I, I did my whole talk earlier this spring uh, and we had it on a Facebook post. I'll send the link for that. So okay. That we've got to find the, that. The tornado dance, it has the hail juggling, it has the jet stream and the weather balloon and all of that stuff. And I've performed this for a lot of years, but in recent time, I take about the last five or 10 minutes of my talk and talk about climate change. And the way that I present it to grade school kids, I say, boys and girls, I want to talk to you about something that's very important and it's called climate change or global warming. And you may hear about it on the news or Mom and dad may talk about it. The world is getting warmer because when we burn gasoline in a car or coal in a power plant, part of what comes out of the smokestack or the tailpipe is something called carbon dioxide. It's not poisonous, but it's very good at trapping heat like a blanket around our world, making the world gradually warmer. Doesn't mean we won't have winter or a snowstorm because that's weather, but gradually the planet's getting warmer. And why is that a problem? I talk a little bit about sea level rise and drought and fires and things, but then I hold up my, my phone and I say, I'm optimistic because 15 or 20 years ago, these did not exist and they have the power of a supercomputer from 30 years ago. And today we carry a supercomputer in our pocket and don't even think twice about it. And then I say, boys and girls, there's gonna be amazing inventions that are gonna happen in the next 25 years. And you know who's gonna invent them? You guys. You're gonna be the people that make the changes that solve the problems we have. And then I say, teachers, let's give these world changers a round of applause. Yeah, and, and you you just said something that triggered a, something that I wanna ask you as someone that just really interacts with the public even more than I do. This idea of the difference between weather and climate, I mean, because I know like you, you probably hear someone, you get this tweet, hey, it's snowing. I got 20 inches of global warming in my yard. Mm -hmm. It's cold today. What happened to climate change? How do you deal with that when you get that? Because I know you get it. Uh, the, the, the analogy I like to use is that weather is one play in a football game and climate is the history of the National Football League. And so when you put it together that way, yeah, you can have a fluke play or whatever. I mean, if it's snowing in Las Vegas, hey, it's wintertime. And we do expect more unusual weather occurrences to happen as the planet gets warmer. Right. And that works pretty well. And what I will tell my, my, uh, my broadcast brethren out here that in Outlook, you can create your signature. Well, you can have dozens and dozens of signatures. And so when I write back to somebody an answer about climate change, I save that as a signature. And so it might say climate change, uh, uh, energy thoughts, or climate change, uh, uh, little ice age or something like that. So when someone challenges me and says, you know, we had the little ice age and we had this and that, and then I can send them actually paragraphs worth of stuff, but I don't have to write it every time. Dear Bob, glad that you brought up the little ice age and the medieval warm period. Obviously you understand a little bit about forcing. Let me explain more. And uh, boy, does that work well, because I don't spend hours doing this. I've written it once. I can tweak these things and send them out. So use your signatures, ladies and gentlemen. It'll save you a lot of time.
That, that's really that's really good advice for colleagues out there in the field. More importantly, where can listeners buy or download your book? The world's littlest book on climate. And if you just search that on Amazon, it'll pop right up. Uh, you can get a Kindle edition for $2.99. And if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. And the uh, hard copy is, I think, $6.99 or something like that. So it's available now from Amazon.com. Yeah, I, I, I highly recommend this book. I've had a chance to look at it. I think I even wrote something uh, in, in the, about the book when it first came out because I just recognize this is exact. We we have to sort of, as you said, I've, I've often said, you got to know your audience when you're talking climate change. If you don't, it's like throwing darts at a dartboard with the lights off. And so we have to meet people where they are. We've got to make people understand that this is about their kitchen table issues. It's not about some yep. polar bear. We like polar bears, but it's not about some polar bear in the year 2080. It's about right now. Where can people follow you on social media? Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I know you're on Twitter, but uh, do you have social media that's out there that you want to share? Uh, my, my Twitter is Mike Nelson 247 and my uh, Facebook is Mike Nelson Denver 7. Now, I'm going to give you the last word here as we're drawing to a close. Got this book out there. You see what's happening in the world. What are sort of your final parting shots on what you hope to accomplish from this book and what, what you hope it's done in five, 10, five, 10 years from now uh, once it's out there and everyone's read it? I have been out to uh, California, just north of Los Angeles, to tour the massive amounts of solar fields that they're putting in there, along with wind energy. And California, the world's fifth largest economy, is rapidly uh, heading toward zero emissions. They're going to have this done by law, by mandate, no later than 2045. And it's often been said that when California sneezes, the rest of the country catches a cold. Uh, I think we're leading in those areas. We're seeing the wind energy that's going in in Texas, one of the big petrochemical states in the country, but they are leading in wind energy. And there are huge resources that we have in wind and solar, offshore wind. You read articles about it every week now. Uh, we're going to solve this. Uh, we've, we've kind of delayed about three decades that we shouldn't have. But just today I read an article how GM is going to rapidly increase the investment into electric vehicles. So we're going to get there. And uh, I remain optimistic because uh, I think although this is one of our greatest challenges, uh, we have had great challenges in the past and we've accomplished wonderful things. So I really am optimistic that uh, in the next decade, we're going to see massive changes. Uh, we'll have to we'll have some big problems. I mean, obviously, a lot, a lot of this warming is locked in for a long time, but I, I do remain optimistic that we will solve these problems. And that's I'll leave it with this. The problems we yeah. face cannot be solved with the same level of thinking as when we created them. And that is attributed to Einstein. Yes. And I'm familiar with that. And that's a very appropriate way to end it. But before I completely end the podcast, it's that time of the podcast where we talk about our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Dr. Bob Robber. Hey, I know Bob. Bob serves as the director of the School of Earth Society and Environment at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He loves being able to share his passion for weather and inspire the next generation of scientists who are studying everything from winter storms to cloud microphysics. His favorite kind of weather is winter storms, but his research interest also extends to marine boundary layer clouds, mid-latitude cyclones, 
and severe storms, especially mesoscale convective systems. Keep up the great work, Bob, and I've had the pleasure of knowing Bob for many years through AMS and others. Now, if we know, or if you know someone else that is deserving of our Geek of the Week, feel free to check us out on social media on how to apply. Mike, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the book. I mean, it's really awesome. Thank you for writing it. Appreciate it very much, Marshall. Great to talk with you. And uh, I appreciate what you guys are doing out there with the Weather Geeks. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.